Uh, April 14th is Good Friday. It's the Friday before uh, Easter, and we typically do a Good Friday service. We're going to do two this year. They're both going to be short, okay, so we don't, or there's not going to be any child care because they're both going to be really short. There's going to be one at seven and one at eight. And if you are somebody who loves and follows Jesus, that's great service to come to. It's going to be very reflective. We're going to send you guys out, hopefully, thinking about some things. Every Good Friday is a little different than the other one. This one is, again, going to be one of the shortest ones that we've done. There's going to be no brothel music playing upstairs. You're welcome if you're here for that one. Um, so, uh, 7 and 8. And if you are going to invite somebody to come to something don't invite that doesn't know Jesus, don't invite them to come to the Good Friday service, please. Because okay? it's we and on Sunday mornings we, we try and do a good job of talking about who Jesus is, lifting up who He is in everything. But also in the midst of it, we try and make it understandable. Good Friday is just something we're gearing directly at believers. All right, so uh, come to that, and then we and then we have our normal. Uh, Easter services, we'll do one Saturday night at 6 p.m. If you help out in the children's or anything like that, that's a great one to come to. Uh, we also call it our practice service. There's always something that goes wrong, which is awesome, so you come to that. And we do have our normal three ones on Easter Sunday morning as well, so come to any of those. But there you go, Good Friday. On my notes, talk about Good Friday. So welcome to Element. If you are new or newer, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one or lost one, <laughs> or forgot where you put it, uh, you can take one with you. Um, there are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes to go a little bit deeper as well, some questions that will take you a little bit deeper as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version, and then click on More and then Events in Version, and you will get our sermon notes, questions, announcements, everything that goes along with today's message right on your phone. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. And it says, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in all of life's circumstances. That though sometimes you seem to be late in our eyes, you are never late. You're exactly where you need to be, when you need to be, because you hold all things in your hands. And so I ask that today we would be a people who understand that even better, that you would gain great glory while your people live in the joy that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. Alright, so we are doing this series on Jesus' authority, and if you didn't know this, our culture hates authority. They hate anybody being over authority over them, they hate being told what to do. One of the reasons a lot of people want to rebel against God is they don't like the idea of God because He has authority over us because He made us. It's kind of like if you ever listen to any punk band that's ever come out, they all got like, you know, screw authority, you know, forget authority, anarchy in the UK, all that. But they're just a bunch of whiners if you listen to them. Because if somebody crosses them, they're like, oh, how dare you? And they call the authorities. Yeah, that's what they do. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. If you've ever seen some of them, much of those skinheads are a bunch of whiners, too. Because like, how dare somebody? That just need to be. Anyway. So, Jesus does have authority over us. Uh, but the series is about that. But it's also about why he has that authority as well. To say and do the things that he did. The series comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Love your neighbor. Keep your oaths. Be a light in the world. Pray. Use the gifts that God gave you to bless others. And then Jesus takes all that he said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 8 and 9. Then he goes and he lives that out and shows us the authority that he has to say the things he 
did and do the things that he did. Now, today is going to be a little different take on what we talked about last week. And last week was the day the time changed, and most of you weren't here because it's like the lowest attended Sunday of the year. It's like, time change? I can't go worship Jesus. He hates me, right? So... So, even if you missed last week, you're still going to be okay. It's going to stand on its own. But if you were here last week, it'll kind of fit together, and, and you'll see that. Uh, we covered the same verses. We're going to kind of skim through those today. Uh, last week, Jesus, we showed the authority he has over clean and unclean restoration into community. And today, we're really going to look at the idea of Jesus' authority over life and death and our healing. And then our also misunderstanding of his authority to do things in his timing and his way. So, if your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 9. And again, since we dealt with these verses last week, I'm only going to zero in on a couple that are in here. Uh, We'll look at uh, Jesus' authority over life and death more at Easter as well. This section starts like this. We read it as I had you stand, Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Matthew wants you to understand from the outset that Jesus has authority over death, so he starts by telling us about the ultimate result. There are also parallel accounts of this in the book of Mark and the book of Luke. And in those accounts, it tells us the girl wasn't dead yet. They both said she was dying. And as Jesus was on his way there, she died. I think Matthew is just kind of condensing all of those things together to save space and simply show the point in the end that the others get to, that Jesus has authority over life and death. In the other accounts, you see the little girl died because Jesus really didn't come fast enough. He gets sidetracked with a woman who has a bleeding condition for 12 years. Jesus stops. He deals with the woman. He deals with the crowd. He deals with his disciples. And as a result of this seeming distraction, the little girl is dead. In Luke 8 49, someone even comes from the ruler's house. So someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Mark 5 22 says there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This could mean the little girl was actually dead before the guy ever went to go see Jesus. But there's also this thing sitting in the air that there's nagging thing if Jesus just would have been faster would she have really died if, if, if he was faster would it showed he actually cared more and this goes back into what we talked about last week that our faith is only as valuable as the object of our faith we have to understand that Jesus does things in his timing in his way for his purpose and that purpose may be different than ours no matter how good or how right we think our purpose is at a time Jesus will still do things in his timing and his way and so what I also want to do this morning is cover some famous verses about Jesus raising somebody else from the dead. And we'll tie that back into this little girl and how it comes together. And we're going to talk about a guy named Lazarus. So open your Bibles over to John chapter 11. This is some people's favorite story in the entire Bible where Lazarus gets raised from the dead. I think it's amazing. One day we'll probably get to meet this guy and this little girl and her dad. I encourage you, if you have kids, read the scriptures with your kids because kids have a propensity to remember the scriptures even when you as adults can't remember where you put your keys. Kids remember all kinds of stuff. Make them excited about the glorious future that God promises, that even when there is death, even when there's crisis in your family, that God still promises something greater and beautiful that comes. Talk to your kids about this. So John chapter 11, going to start in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the, who, who the Lord, 
It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So this is a lot like Matthew. They sent a thing to Jesus. Hey, this person is sick. Can you come and do something about that? In John, though, this is Jesus' actual friend. When Jesus traveled, you'll see different places in the scriptures, like Luke 10 tells you, that Jesus would stay at these people at this people's house, that they were like their friends. Kind of like when you're a kid and you're growing up, up and you got a best friend and you'd hang out at their house. It's like your second home. That's kind of, this is that for Jesus, where these people are. It's been a while since he has been there and his friend gets sick. So they send Jesus a letter. Hey, can you come and take care of this? Cause your buddy's sick. Verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he, uh, he said, this illness does not lead to death. In Greek, that means end in death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. And this is important because Lazarus will die. But Jesus states that the world isn't over. This end for Lazarus is not death here. This is all done for the purpose of God's glory. This should be very comforting to us as a people because in our sickness, in our crisis, even in the death that surrounds us, it is not the end. God still works through whatever comes our way to make something beautiful and life-changing in the end. Jonathan Edwards has said that the object of all things is God's glory, and when God gets glory, people get joy. And so we understand these two stories in Matthew and the one here in John that Jesus is on his throne. God is on his throne and we can rest now peace because we are not God and we simply need to trust him. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he loves them. So what does he do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Seems a little odd, right? Right? Well, why? If you loved him so much, why wouldn't you go? This is the same question with the little girl in Matthew we looked at last week. If Jesus loves them so much, why does he wait? And if you follow Jesus or been a Christian any amount of time in your life, you know this. God always seems to be late. He always seems to be late. But Jesus shows that God seems to be late. He is always right on time. He's always exactly where he needs to be, working things out exactly as it needs to be done. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some, as some understand slowness, he is patient with you. We always seem to feel like God is so slow. But God comes in his timing and in his way to do what he needs to do. And a lot of times that does feel late. We say things like, God, I need you right now. And God says, okay, we'll figure this out in a couple days. I'm like, no, God, it's a right now. I'm like, okay, we'll figure this out in the next couple months. It's it's a crisis. And God's like, okay, in the next couple of years, we'll work through this and see what's going on. That's what he seems to do. He teaches us patience and he does all things for his glory and in the end, for his people's good. Ask yourself, does God not love these people in this story? Of course he does. It says Jesus loves them right in the text. And just because we think our world's going to end and he's not responding like we want him to, does not mean the absence of God's affection or God's love or his authority. We must remember that. He still loves and cares for us. He just does things as he knows it needs to be done. Verse 7, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And that means kill them, not go and smoke out. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, 
Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, 2,000 years removed, you read statements like this and we go, why did Jesus always talk so weird? He's not talking where he's speaking in a euphemism of the day. That the day is broken into these different periods and while it's light, that's when you go to work. And he's saying, while I am in the world, it's light. So we got things to do. Whether they're going to kill me or not kill me, it doesn't matter. We got things to do. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to him, said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So you have this whole conversation with the disciples, because they're a little slow, <laughs> just, just like us. They're like, oh, napping is good when you're sick. How about we just let him sleep, and then we don't have to go there and die. That's, that's, that's like our plan. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. What I mean is I say this thing, but he's actually dead. Throughout the New Testament, sleep is a metaphor for death. Ecclesiastes 12 says our bodies will rot in the ground. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8 says we go to be with God. Some people take this metaphor of sleeps, like Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witnesses, and they say the body and the soul will sit in the ground till resurrection. That is not what the scriptures teach. We're absent with, from the body, present with the Lord. And so Jesus explains to these slow learners called his disciples that Lazarus is dead. It is not soul sleep. He's not metaphysically challenged. He's just dead. And the purpose of Jesus' action is Lazarus dying here so Jesus can go and build their faith. You have to understand that the miracles in the scriptures and the things that God does is not just for the people who got the miracles. It's for the people around to see and glorify God and see God really does do things in His timing, in His way, for His glory and His people's good. All of our crises in our lives today, all of our sicknesses, all of our confusion, in the end will ultimately be, ultimately be for God's glory. And our faith will be built up in that. And I love this. Verse 16, So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas, here's called the twin. What do we call Thomas? Anybody know? Doubting Thomas. Why? Because after Jesus rose from the grave, he's the guy, well, I'm not going to believe Jesus rose from the grave unless I stick my hand in his side and my fingers through the holes in his hands. And all the rest of the disciples are like, that's gross. You know, it's disgusting. Why would you do that? But here you see this guy. It's amazing. He's like, you know what? Jesus is going to go. I'm with him. I'm going to pack a bag. And if he dies, I die. That's Thomas. That's Thomas. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And this is also nice for us because you got to skip the entire walk there. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Customary for a Jewish funeral like this is you would have all your friends and relatives come into your home and they would stay there for a week while you mourn together. The Jews would call this sitting shebas or sitting sevens, where you'd sit seven days with one another. And so these people are all together. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this, where it just feels like all the feeling has gone out of a room. All the air has been sucked out. There's just this deep will of something missing. That's what's taking place right here. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And here you get a classic look at these two sisters and how they handle loss. And I think it just shows exactly what kind of people's spirituality do. It goes one of two ways. You have the activist person who when something happens, they start doing something. And then you have the other person who's contemplative. And they will go and study and pray and read scripture and think and introspect. 
Martha is the classic activist. Jesus is coming. Great. I'm going to get on the road. I'm going to meet him. I'm going to tell him what he did wrong. I'm going to tell him how to fix this. That's Martha. Mary, on the other hand, sits and she cries, and Jesus will come and deal with both of them in their own way. So Martha goes to Jesus, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, so she starts off with the right words, but it's just kind of a title because she launches right in. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. I sent you a letter. Did you not get my letter? If you loved us, you would have gotten here and taken care of this problem. It's a lot like the other story. But she catches herself. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She stops trying to boss him around and says, you know what you can do, and she leaves it there. If you've ever been somebody who tried to boss God around, you know he doesn't like it. <laughs> he just doesn't like it. And it's a losing battle anyway. So Jesus looks at Martha, and he says something wonderful. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now what Martha does is she takes that as religious platitude. She doesn't take it as what Jesus is really saying. She takes it as, oh, I'm really sad, so someone's throwing a verse at me. That's what she hears. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know that she took it as a platitude because that's what she reads into it. Now, the resurrection for the Jews was a hotly debated issue. It actually still is even today. And this time you had the group of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Jesus also believed in a resurrection. You had the other side called the Sadducees, and they did not believe in a resurrection. And the Sadducees ran the temple. The only time these two groups will come together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is when they want to fight and kill Jesus. And later, fight and kill the Apostle Paul. When they go after Paul, it's actually very funny because Paul throws the idea of the resurrection out there and the Sadducees and the Pharisees start fighting each other. It's very funny. If you ever at a party with a bunch of religious people and it's getting kind of boring, just be like, hey, what do you guys think about speaking in tongues? And just take a step back and go. <laughs> or be like, what do you think about predestination and election? Just walk away. Just walk away. Now, I think the Old Testament is much more clear about the idea of a resurrection than the Sadducees think it was. I think Isaiah 52 and 53 clearly state the Messiah is going to come and die and rise from the grave. Uh, Daniel 12, 2 and 3 in the NIV says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, the Jews, though, who did believe in a resurrection, they believed the entire nation of Israel would be resurrected at once, all of them. And so Jesus actually does three different resurrections of individuals throughout his ministry, and they always have a problem with it because he raises one person and not the entire nation. And they also don't have glorified bodies, like when Jesus raises from the dead glorified bodies. The people he raised didn't get that. They eventually died again. So they have a hard time believing Jesus because he raised one person at a time, not the entire nation. So Martha, here's Jesus' words, your brother will rise again. Oh, I know he'll resurrect on the last day. It's this theological issue in her head. Verse 25, though, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. A lot of people today will say that Jesus never claimed to be God in the scriptures. Jesus very clearly claims to be God in the scriptures. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus will use these I am statements. It comes out of Exodus 3.14 where Moses says to God, Who do I go tell Pharaoh that sent me? 
And God says, tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus comes and says, I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. All authority has been placed into my hands. All life stems from me. There is no life apart from Jesus. And we will not conquer death apart from Jesus. Jesus looks to her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He looks at Martha. He reaffirms who he is. And he says, do you believe this? Martha is frantic. She is grieved. She's in pain. And what Jesus does is goes, hey, hey, who am I? I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's what he does. He takes and he resets. and Her mind is all over the place. And he resets her and says, look at me. Focus on me. Who am I? I'm the resurrection life. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And on our vernacular, we would say, You are God who has come to rescue and save us, to be with us, and I'm going to trust you. After Jesus deals with Martha, he will go and he will deal with Mary, the very contemplative one. She will say the same thing as her sister. Jump to verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So you know her and her sister in cahoots, and they talked about it because they said the exact same thing to Jesus. Yeah, okay, okay. It's, and this is so like us, though. We always think God doesn't know what he's doing. And God knows exactly what he is doing. We simply need to trust him. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, The Greek words for that actually means, it means perturbed and agitated and angry. And I don't think that's directed at the mourners or the Jews or Martha and Mary. I think he's agitated by death. I think he sees what sin has done to the world that he made, what has happened to his people, the consequences that sin has brought into his creation, which has resulted resulted in death and separation. We were not meant to experience that. God did not create us to experience death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death is our enemy. Today, we will buckle up and we will take vitamins and drink bottled water and we fight death, but we all die. Death wins. One box, one person, that's how it works. And Jesus is agitated by it, and I'm glad he's agitated by it. I'm glad Jesus doesn't say, oh well, it's a part of life. I have heard that at funerals and it's stupid because it is not part of life. It is not part of life. The first funeral I can remember was my Aunt Lindy. She was not really my aunt. She was my step-grandma's friend, and she had this, this tiny yappy dog that all great horror movies are based on. And this, and this big bowl of candy, when I came over, just like the Bible says. Okay, maybe not. Okay. And when I heard that she, was, she died, I was devastated. My parents didn't hide it from me. It's like when our dog died, it, it's like, oh, it ran away. Well, that's better. <laughs> it ran away from me. Okay. Or, or oh, we took it to the farm. It's like, they, but my, my Aunt Emily dies? Oh, no. No holding that back. She's dead. So, we, so I go to this funeral, and I, and I hated it. As a, kid, as a kid, I never considered my Aunt Lindy would die. I was frustrated. I hated death. Something is wrong. It's not a natural part of life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We were built to live. Death is our enemy. We're not supposed to die. 
And today, everyone will have some kind of take on this. They'll say, oh, well, you know, God doesn't really know what's happening. He's lost like us. He's trying to figure it out. No, no. God works all things out for our good. We sin. Our sin has brought death into the world. And God will bring something beautiful on the backside out because that's who he is. Too often, when tragedy strikes our lives, we just throw up our hands and react so poorly. We do not wait to see the other side. We're just rendering verdicts. It's like 10 minutes into a movie thinking you know how it's going to end. Everybody ever see that movie Up? Right? Okay. Oh, kids movie. Yes, we've all seen that. Okay. Up. 10 minutes in, what happens? The dude's wife dies. You'd be like, I'm done with this movie. If you did that, you would miss the dog. Right? Squirrel! Right? You would totally miss the best part of the movie. But that is so often what happens when crisis and death hits our lives. We're like, God, why? And we go, we storm it out. You can't do that. You have no idea where it's going. Only God knows where it is going. And God always throws in a plot twist. He always does something we don't see. Oh, on the backside, that's what God was doing. That's what God is doing. We're only 10 minutes in. And when tragedy strikes, you trust him. You trust him. We are told Jesus loved Lazarus. You know who else the Bible says Jesus loves? You. Uh, me. Us. Us. So the story moves on. And Jesus goes to the outside of this grave. Uh, the, the way these worked in this time is you would hollow out a, a cave. And you put the dead bodies in there. You put a big rock in front so, rob, so robbers and animals couldn't get in you. Same type of tomb that Jesus will actually be buried in for three days. In verse 39, Jesus goes there and he says, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You know what it says in the NIV? I mean, in the, in the King James Version, it says, he stinketh. It's a great, it's a great word, right? Because, you know, some guys don't take a shower four days and they stink. You've been dead for four days, you stinketh, okay? And, and it says this because it's trying to get you to understand. He is dead. How do you know he's dead? He stinketh. Exactly. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? He says... Focus on me. Oh, I didn't mean you guys. Jesus says. <laughs> you guys are all, what? <laughs> he says, did I not tell you? Are you going to trust me? This is who I am. So he focuses back. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? We're not done with the movie. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus has never been out of communication with the Father. This is said for the people around so they would know that Jesus and the Father are on the same mission. They're working together. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. That's how it's said in the scriptures. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he said this, the Lord had to say Lazarus' name or he would have emptied the whole graveyard. (laughs) Great words, right? It's like, come out. Everybody's like, okay. You talking to me? (laughs) No, just him. Oh, no, okay. Whenever somebody, when you're going to use the bathroom and someone's like stuck in there for a long time, just be like, John, come out! (laughs) It'll be great. So Jesus says this. Lazarus rises from the grave. And what does it show you? 
Jesus is resurrection and life. The point is not that everybody, that Jesus is going to stand in front of your grave the moment you die and say, come out. It's that he is resurrection and life, and our lives are meant to be found in him and who he is and what he has done, his timing, his way. We can trust him in all things. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Okay? Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowds making a commotion. You know what that is? That's death. Okay? That is death. There's no doubt about it that she has died. He said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. He uses the same language. And they laughed at him. But the crowd had been put, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Here it wasn't four days, but they knew that she was dead. Jesus comes in and he proves his authority and that he is resurrection and life. Now, the point that we need to understand is that sin causes death. If there had been no sin in this world, we would not have died. Death is our enemy. We do not need to embrace it. We do not need to make peace with it. We do not need to be obsessed by it. If you have had someone in your life and they have died and you hated it, that is a proper biblical response. You hate it. Hebrews 9.27 says we will all die once. We do not come back and do it over. There's no reincarnation, no karma, no multiple cycles of regress where Everyone thinks they were Joan of Arc or lived on Atlantis or something like that. Everyone dies, and our sin is judged. You die, your body goes to the grave, your soul goes before God, and at some point there is a resurrection in there of the righteous and the wicked. Are we a friend of God or an enemy of God? And this makes sense, because if God is an eternal God, a sin against an eternal God is an eternal type of sin. And so what happens in this is there's eternal compensation for it. So you have two options, that Jesus is resurrection and life, and you actually trust him with your life, that God who is eternal comes in the person of Jesus and dies for our sin. He meets all of these consequences because he is eternal, and he can do that. Or on the other side, you and I for eternity try and pay for it on our own, which we will never be able to do. And we believe that is the fate of everyone. But the good news, why we call the gospel the good news, is that Jesus came and Jesus said, I want you to believe and I want you to see the glory of God and I am the resurrection and the life and you can trust me. And though your body may die, you will live by believing in me. And here's the deal. I tell you this a lot. I think God is the one who initiates with people. He does it here. Everybody's telling him what to do, and yet he comes when he needs to, in the precise way that he needs to. It's not us finding God, like he is the scout master with a busted flashlight and compass lost in the middle of the forest. Did you find God? Oh, I found God. No, God finds us. God finds us. It's not that we love God. The scripture states that God first loved us. God has come to us, and he rescued us. He holds on to us, and we are people who are supposed to respond to that. We love him back. We follow him back in response to what he has done. And what you see is there's two ways that people respond to this great grace and grace, great love of God. I think the first way is what I would call appropriately, and that's what's called worship. It's not singing songs. It's how we live out the rest of our lives, where we, where we follow and we serve and we give. And you will see people do this in the book of Matthew and the book of John. Or I would say people respond also inappropriately, where they disbelieve him and they oppose him and become hostile and they fight the truth of who he says he is. And you see in Matthew and John, people do the same thing. Every time Jesus does something in somebody's life somewhere, you see those two reactions. And this has happened all throughout human history. Some people today say, well, if I saw Jesus walk on water, or I saw Jesus rise someone out of the grave, well, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. 
Because there are people in the scriptures who saw that happen and they still did not believe. And I know this is true because all of us has habits and practices and customs in our lives. And we love it when Jesus comes and he does exactly what we tell him to do. Do this thing and something works out. We're like, oh yeah, God did what he's supposed to. But we hate it when he says how our lives are supposed to change and be lived differently. We don't want to listen to him when he calls us to live differently. We want him to do exactly what we we say he should do. We don't think he knows better than us, but he does. And if you are someone who follows Jesus, we have to be really careful as religious people that we don't get so set in our ways that we refuse to be inconvenienced by Jesus. Because Jesus comes and that's what he does. He inconveniences us so we will grow. Jesus is not committed to the structures and the policies and the politics we hold to. He is committed to the glory of God which means everyone who seeks their own glory, especially his people, are going to be offended because Jesus takes his glory from misplaced areas and puts it back where it's actually supposed to be. In the hands of the Father, all things for God's glory. He is the resurrection life. He is the one with all authority. And even in the midst of our crises and struggles and death, he still puts the glory right back where it's supposed to be. I think the same question that Martha gets asked is the same question that we get asked. Do you believe? Do you believe? Not in life after death. Do you believe as Jesus, as resurrection and life? Do you believe in him like that? In John 5, 25 and 27, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John 6, 40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. And when he's talking to the Jews there, he's talking about that bodily resurrection. But the whole idea of eternal life is not something that happens on the last day. Eternal life is something that begins the moment you believe. Do you believe Jesus' resurrection and life? Do you believe that he is the one who he said he was? And when crisis strikes your life or there's death or something you don't understand, do you trust him in the midst of that? Because this is one of the reasons that we do communion every week. Because communion is the way that we're going to... See if I do this soon. Communion is where it's like, hey, right here. Right? It's meant to do that and reset us on the person of Jesus. I know if you fell asleep, you're like, what's going on? Right? But that's communion. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It's meant to reset our focus to where it was meant to be on the person of Jesus. Too often, our focus gets all over the place. It's not where it's supposed to be. And Jesus constantly allows things in our lives that resets us so our focus would be where it needs to be. Where's it supposed to be? On Jesus. See, I give you an easy one every week so you can just throw it out there. That's the idea. That's the idea. So the band's going to come up, as they do. I'm going to invite you today, if you would like, to take communion to allow that resetting and refocusing of your life on the person of Jesus and what he has done, that he is the one who has brought us back into relationship with God. He is the one who has rescued us. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the resurrection and life, and he is the one who has all authority in and over our lives. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you about whatever's going on in your life. But if you are somebody who you feel like your focus is all over the place and you'd like to be able to get it reset on the person of Jesus, they would love to pray with you about that.
They would, they would love to sit down and lay their hands on you as representative of God laying his hand upon you. And they would love to pray with you and reset your focus to where it needs to be as Jesus as the one with all authority. Uh, they're offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a total response to what he has done, so you actually have to get up and do it. There's food and stuff in the back. My wife made cookies. I don't know if any are left, but they're awesome because she loves you. And grab something to eat, meet some people around you, and maybe begin to ask some of those questions in the sermon notes. One of the questions in there says, you know, do you, do you really trust Jesus? Because I think a lot of us say that we trust Jesus because we say we love Jesus. But I think if we trusted him, our lives would look a lot different. I think that when we trust him, our focus would begin to be reset. Not that we don't get you know, off track at times and look at the wrong things. I get that. We all do. But it would come back to the place where it needs to be on his person as resurrection and life. And that, that idea of resurrection life, it's a very Jewish concept. And when you go through the book of Matthew, there's a lot of that stuff in there. But hopefully you begin just to grab a glimpse of that. That he is the one who brings our hearts and our souls and our lives to life again. And we get to live in the great newness of life that he calls us into. Worship is not just what happens in this room corporately together. Worship is more importantly what happens outside these walls. As we live lives with Jesus as the center of them, as resurrection and life out there by living how he calls us to live. By touching the world like he has touched us. By giving away all that he has given to us. We get to be his representatives of his resurrection and life because of how we live. Because of what he has done. Because our God is that good and he holds all authority in his hands. His timing, his way, his goodness. Let's pray. Father. This morning we ask that you would teach us, as a people, how to simply begin to trust you more. Father, too often our focus gets all into the wrong places. And we cease to even think about the things that you have done or you continue to do. Too often we live our lives as if we're ten minutes into a movie. And we're just frustrated because we don't know what the end's going to be. But you do. You work all things out to your glory and in the end your people's joy. You bring good into our lives because you are a God who has rescued us. You have come to us in our deadness and sin. And you have said to us, come out. You have given us new life. And too often, we refuse to live in that new life. But I ask that today, you begin to refocus us on your person, upon who you are, so that what we do and what we say and how we live comes out of you being our resurrection and life that we would not hold these things close to our chest, but we would begin to give all the things that you've given to us away. We would love those around us. We would speak truth to those around us. We would worship you in more than just songs on the radio. We would worship you because you truly are the center of our lives that you are the one and only true God that rescues and redeems. 
Teach us to be a people who live in that truth that you have rescued and saved and brought our souls back to life and we will spend eternity living with and for you. Teach us to live that today, now. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.